Good afternoon and welcome to A Reason for Hope. My name is Adrian Van Vactor and I am sitting in for Dave Robson. He's out of country right now, but it's a pleasure to be in studio with our senior pastor, Scott Richards. Hello, sir. Hey, how's it, how's it going, Adrian? Good. It's good. 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 The boys are good. Everyone's finally over all their sniffles and belly aches and for the next wave of for, the term for, factors. For the next three or four days. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> ah, I remember yeah. those days well. <laughs> Uh, also in studio with me is um, Pastor Sean, who's... Uh, Wrestling the, with his microphone. Yeah, he's in the middle of a octagon fight with his microphone handle thingy. He's only got two moving parts. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but we are uh, really just glad to be here. We do this uh, every, every weekday, 5 to 6 p.m. Mountain Standard Time. If you're listening in from outside the uh, United States or maybe outside just the southwestern United States, but this is a Bible answer program called The Reason for Hope. We live stream uh, every weekday, as I said, from 5 to 6 p.m. out of our studio right here in Tucson, Arizona at Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. And uh, the whole purpose of us doing this is being able to engage with individuals who have an interest in not just world religions, but really an interest in who the person uh, and, and really the work of Jesus of Nazareth. And uh, perhaps you have a question about the Bible, uh, about how to apply a specific passage to your life, or maybe just a deeper understanding of, of something you might be a little confused by, or maybe want just a deeper understanding on how to interpret a certain passage of Scripture. We do a lot of discussions on comparative religions, um, arguments for God's existence, the historicity of the Bible. Uh, was Jesus just a myth? Was he uh, a, a magician or a deceiver, or was he genuinely the Messiah? and what that means to us in our lives today. So please join us and ask questions, uh, whatever you're uh, sincerely seeking to understand on a deeper level. And there are multiple ways for you to engage with us. First of all, you can join us on Facebook. We live stream straight to the platform. Go to our page, which is facebook.com forward slash at CCF Tucson. And just as the live stream is going, just leave your question in the comment section and we will monitor that throughout the program. You can also engage with us on YouTube. If you go to youtube.com and go to our handle, a, at a reason for hope 546 that's at a reason for hope 546 and we'd appreciate it if you'd subscribe and hit that notification bell. We live stream not just this program, but all our services. And we are a church that loves to teach the Bible, especially going book by book, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. So. If you want to go to our website and go back into our archives, you can actually go through a study of the book of the Bible, a book of the Bible, and uh, follow along verse by verse that way. You can also catch us uh, on Rumble. We archive this program there. We're not live streaming there just quite yet, but uh, we'd appreciate if you'd follow us and help us grow our audience on the Rumble platform. If you would prefer to just watch the program and leave questions outside of a social media platform, you can just go to our website. That's calvarychristianfellowship.com and just hit that watch live tab and you can watch our services as well as this program live. There's a comment box where you can leave your questions and a nifty little button if you have a special prayer request that you would like to have uh, us to pray for, then you can hit that button and leave a prayer request. We also have a Bible app available on the iTunes and Google Play Store. If you go there and look for Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson, you can download our app, which has all our events, studies, archive sermons, a nifty little Bible where you can leave notes, you can start chat groups, 
You can engage with our community through that app. So I'd encourage you to get that if you are a member of this community or if you just want to have another way to listen to our um, teaching ministry as well as this program, you can do that through the app. If you'd prefer to email us your question, maybe be a little more discreet, maybe you don't want to engage on social media but just want to have a question addressed on the program, simply email us at questionsforhope at gmail.com. That's questionsforhope, all spelled out, no numbers at gmail.com for those of you listening on the radio. Also would encourage you to follow our senior pastor on Twitter. So twitter.com forward slash at Scott R4H and you can follow along there and you can even ask questions there. If you want to post a question on Pastor Scott's Twitter feed, we'd encourage you to do that. <sighs> Very excited for today. <laughs> it's Wednesday. We're having our Oasis service tonight. Yeah. We're going through the book of Ezekiel. So if you uh, have an interest in that particular book of the Bible, which I would hope you would, you would. It's a very, very, very fascinating study. We're uh, in the oh, yeah. chapter 20. 20. We're 20 in chapter 22. The name of uh, the uh, message tonight is Life on the Edge. How are we to respond to the idea? Okay, are we living in the last days? A question we get a lot here on the program. Uh, even more important question is, is this. If we are living in the last days, how does God want us to respond to this set of circumstances? And uh, there's some really very powerful insights in Ezekiel 22, uh, culminating in the whole idea of uh, being an intercessor, even when things are really, really crazy, and how rare prayer warriors really are. So if you've ever wanted to learn how to be a prayer warrior, we're going to see just mm -hmm. how important that is. We're going to see a great example of somebody who was and uh, how it's one of the most Christ-like things I think you can ever do, especially in crazy times like these. So a wow. little preview. Awesome. coming attractions yeah <laughs> how's that for a trailer yeah. <laughs> well before we take your questions we uh would like to take a moment to pray so if you wouldn't mind listening in there out there on the interwebs joining us as we go to the lord and ask to uh, have our words be filled with grace and knowledge and wisdom and understanding so that we can draw closer to the lord and uh, have a, a a more intimate relationship with him uh, pastor scott would you do the honors i'm um, sure lord thank you so much that you love us and thank you lord that you meet with us here every day so that we can explore your word uh, lord what a beautiful promise uh, jesus that you gave us that when the spirit of truth has come he will lead you into all truth and lord uh, the more we go on in our word your word the more we understand that uh, boy sometimes uh, we uh, really begin to know your word when we begin to understand how much more we need to know of your word so we're hungry lord we we want to come off of this time together with a deeper and fuller understanding not just of what your word says but but what it means to our lives and what it means for you to apply the truths we find in your word in such a way that we end up more like jesus in our character as a result that's that's our desire that's that's our heart uh lord we pray that you through your power uh would make that real for each and every person who's joining in. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. <clears throat> do we have uh, any, speaking of prophecy, do we have any updates? Oh, anything? yeah, we really do. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Some crazy, crazy things are happening uh, in Israel. Uh, last uh, night, a uh, Palestinian terrorist killed four Israelis uh, in an area that would be known as a Jewish settlement it's called the Eli issue uh, e the Eli incident uh, and uh, 
the memorial for these four victims of Palestinian terrorist attacks uh, happened today, uh, Israel responded in a very interesting way. Uh, not only uh, is the individual who perpetrated the attacks, uh, again, uh, achieving room temperature as we speak, uh, but Israel also made the decision in that particular settlement, as they are called. And, you know, we think of uh, uh, Jewish settlements. We tend to think of settlements from the Old West, little house on the prairie, maybe a log cabin, you know, a mm -hmm. little smoke coming up out of the chimney, cow tied out front. Uh, but, uh, you know, Sean will uh, tell you that on our trip to Israel, we saw these Jewish settlements, and, and there are many cities is really what they are. Usually they're surrounded by barbed wire because they're in the middle of the so-called West Bank, uh, surrounded by Palestinians, uh, and the security obviously has to be very, very strong. Mm -hmm. But, uh, you know, gleaming, uh, you know, skyscrapers, uh, you know, state-of-the-art uh, facilities and so on. Uh, well, uh, this particular event took place in one of these settlements, and so the Israeli government made the decision not just to, um, again, uh, take out this terrorist, uh, the home of this terrorist family is going to be bulldozed mm -hmm. as a result of this. Now, you know the Palestinians will put the family of this terrorist on a uh, pretty lucrative pension for the rest of their lives. That's part of uh, what the Palestinians do with the foreign aid that they receive. Uh, literally pay people to mm -hmm. kill Israelis. Uh, but uh, the other thing, which is really significant, is they have just given the, the go-ahead for the building of a thousand new homes in this settlement. So if the goal of this was to oppose Israeli occupation, I would say they've probably doubled it in this uh, particular area, and there's no shortage of individuals who are going to be more than happy to take up those settlements. Although living in one of those settlements is literally taking life in your hands. You see the passion that uh, the Israeli people have for the land that uh, they believe God has given to them and uh, that we know from Scripture he has given to them. So uh, that uh, was a pretty significant incident. But um, even more significant uh, is a, um, an incident that sounds small at first blush but could really end up being something that blows up in a big-time hurry. I guess up to 10 Hezbollah fighters. Now, Hezbollah are the terrorists that r operate out of Lebanon, wholly-owned subsidiary, of the Mad Mullahs in Tehran. Hassan Nasrallah is the uh, head of this particular uh, entity. And 10 Hezbollah fighters, and Hezbollah is no one to mess around with. It's been estimated they have over 150,000 rockets in their arsenal wow. and uh, between 25 to 50 uh, incredibly sophisticated precision guided missiles in uh, their arsenal as well. It could just do tremendous damage if they ever decided let them fly. Um, the United Nations is supposed to police this area that was between Israel and Lebanon. You might remember the, the Lebanon war that happened a number of years ago. Israel pushed all the way in there and then they backed out. This was supposed to be a demilitarized mm -hmm. zone and the UN was supposed to enforce that. Well, the UN's definition of enforcing such a thing is, um, well, I don't know, uh, probably up there with uh, the instructions the average security guard gets at uh, target of people walking off with large amounts of merchandise. You just sort of watch <laughs> them do what they're going to do. So, um, 
you know, this has always been a, uh, a bone of contention and there's sort of give and take and interplay. But what makes this significant is 10 Hezbollah fighters infiltrated Israel at its northern border and set up a small armed military position a few meters in Israeli territory. In other words, Hezbollah is occupying Israeli territory. They've crossed the border and they've set up this small guard unit uh, right in the middle of, um, of this uh, particular section in the Golan Heights. Uh, now, the IDF, the Israeli Defense Forces, said that the matter is known and being dealt with with the relevant authorities. Well, I guess since this incident became uh, known, uh, the foreign ministry has tried to work with uh, the United Nations and their peacekeeping forces to convince this contingent to withdraw without the use of force. Uh, and uh, the area is not considered a security threat to Israel because it's not close to any residential areas and is uh, literally surrounded on all sides by Israeli forces. So, you know, since uh, I guess the embarrassing thing about this is that the IDF did not uh, detect the incursion before the outpost was set up, uh, did shortly after it and attempted some means to remove the group, but uh, they have not removed the group at, at uh, the moment we're speaking here today. And, and so, uh, they're trying not to make it into a big deal. But the more this becomes publicized, and now the cat's out of the bag, uh, the more difficult it's going to be to convince Hezbollah to leave because leaving would be a loss of face for them. And this is, as they say, gold, Jerry, gold, as far as propaganda is uh, concerned for them. So uh, apparently this isn't the first time something like this has happened. But uh, the thing that makes it uh, more intense this time around is uh, Israel is still smarting from the fact that a member of Hezbollah infiltrated Israel through this area, got all the way down into the area around Megiddo in the Jezreel Valley, and set up and detonated an IED that ended up killing Israeli citizens. So Hezbollah is becoming more and more bold as far as these kind of strikes are concerned. And so something like this that may have been par for the course as far as the tensions between Israel and Hezbollah, and they kind of worked it out and everybody went back to trying to play nice with each other uh, for their own motivations. This, because of all this uh, leading in, uh, may not end up being resolved as quickly. And again, in the article in the Jerusalem Post, they make uh, noting note of the fact, as we mentioned, Hezbollah possesses 150,000 rockets and an estimated few hundred or more precision rockets that can do an awful lot of damage. I stand corrected on that particular uh, feature. Uh, the IDF said it's committed uh, to removing the outpost. The incident is viewed as a much lower level provocation than obviously what happened in March. Uh, this guy went uh, uh, almost 60 miles deep into Israel to carry out his terrorist attack in the name of Hezbollah. And uh, Israel did not um, uh, directly respond. It seriously wounded an Israeli citizen. I am told in the article that this uh, uh, Israeli citizen who was seriously injured has made a recovery since that time. If he had died, then the response might have been a lot different. Mm. So 
crazy stuff going on there. It seems like a lot of saber rattling <clears throat> there. Uh, and uh, we really need to be praying for the peace of Jerusalem. As we mentioned, uh, you know, why do we believe that we're living in the last days? Well, first of all, Israel's back in the land. Boy, the book of Ezekiel has a lot to say about that being uh, one of the big signs that, uh, that uh, uh, we are in the general ballpark of uh, the return of Messiah, the return of Jesus to this earth. But uh, the other side of it is, is that we are to look for, as Jesus said, wars and rumors of wars, birth pains uh, that uh, will build up to a particular intensity and then seem to mellow out. Uh, we've seen the birth pains happen with what happened in Gaza with Islamic Jihad and uh, the exchange that happened back then just about a month or so ago. Seems like things are switching over to the northern border of Lebanon Things have been relatively calm and quiet between Hezbollah and Israel, but now it appears that this is the next one to uh, kind of get ignited. Mm. And uh, in a completely unrelated, but uh, certainly a, um, a uh, incident that, uh, that relates uh, to me personally, uh, the Jerusalem Post also reported the man with the largest kidney stone <laughs> on record had that kidney stone removed by surgery the kidney stone was nearly one and three quarters pounds. I had a kidney stone that was probably as big as a little fingernail, and it put me on the ground in pain. Um, this that. one is as big as five baseballs. <laughs> so <laughs> for those of you who have had that privilege and that joy, uh, you know, I just remember going to uh, the emergency room and uh, the nurse saying, oh, we're, we'll get you on some anesthesia as much as possible. I've had a kidney stone, uh, and I've done childbirth. A kidney stone is worse. I looked at her, and I said, that does not help me at all at this moment. <laughs> wow. so, but everybody, somebody's got it worse. Gosh, so, they were like digging so, his kidneys out of a fossilized uh, rock. Oh, man. <laughs> so um, I don't know what that has to do with anything on the program here today, but I thought I'd throw that in. I have a... I had a very interesting Lebanon experience. In 2007, I went and did a whole series of touring from Beirut to the Bekaa Valley, the wild west of Lebanon, to that very region that the border yeah. right with Israel. There's 10 little villages that I did programs in. This was right after the 2007 conflict. So bridges were blown up. I remember doing a show uh, in a school with a tank outside. That was interesting. <laughs> yeah. And uh, just such a, so many interesting encounters and stories and, and threats from Hezbollah because we were doing evangelism. We sure. Were openly proclaiming the gospel, not holding anything back, and uh, very interesting. Obviously. And you live to tell the story. I live to tell God's the story. God's not done with you yet, my friend. <laughs> Talk about a really uh, thrill time. seeker. There you mm. go. So. All right. <clears throat> well, our uh, uh, thank you for the update. And uh, if you want to tune in tonight, again, just go to our website or download our app, and you can uh, listen to our Oasis service tonight. And that starts at 6.30 p.m. Mountain Standard Time. So I hope you have a chance to check that out. Our first question for today, does the Bible say anything about... Uh, oh, I'm sorry, I'm, I skipped down a little bit. That was my wife's question. Ah. Um, I don't want to give preferential treatment, but um, someone asked, is not evangelizing mean that I'm not saved? Put another way, Josh, I guess we can kind of tackle with the same kind of question, but Josh wanted to know, does James 2.17 disqualify someone from salvation if they aren't fulfilling a specific work for God? 
Ah, the John 3.16 of legalism. Yes. Now, he who knows it, what is right to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. Yeah. But faith without works is dead. Yeah. The, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do the things that I tell you to? So on and so forth. When it comes to this argument, it essentially banks on what we would call not just misinterpreting the Bible, because that can be thrown back at you, but a specific kind of mishandling of any written text, which is called eisegesis, meaning that if you have a... Not I saw Jesus. Meaning that if you have a collected work, you have a situation where obviously you get the whole message with the whole story. And if you take a verse in isolation, any passage, any statement, you're going to end up either missing a point because you're isolating it from other explanations, or you're coming to a conclusion too early when it could be in conflict with other passages that are a lot more plain. Now, obviously, James 2.17 is a hot-button issue, but it's at the end of a paragraph that sets up and then continues on with not one but two Old Testament references. So, obviously, if you are going to cite this passage, usually hear it from Mormons, but any group that would emphasize what we call works righteousness, is going to cite this at one time or another. So we need to be prepared in how to handle this. First of all, if someone says thus also, well, those two words already beginning the verse suggest this is in a conclusion to a statement. What is that statement being made? That yeah, if I don't been built up to that point. Yeah, if yeah. I don't save, then I'm a sinner. Well, it says in verse 14, what does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? This would, would in itself maybe play into the hands of those who are disqualifying people from salvation if they don't have a particular work, usually the one that they're selling. It says, can faith save him? If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? Thus also, so in light of this illustration, Faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Now, this is usually spoken by the people who are saying, if you don't have works, you don't have faith. Thus, while well, works without faith is dead, but they usually won't argue that point. It's yeah. a both and, not an either or. But let's continue. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. So notice they're erring on one side or the other. They choose one over the other. Show me your faith without your works, and James one-ups them by saying, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that there is one God. You do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. The acknowledgement of the fact there is a God doesn't any more save you than it does the demons. Intellectual assent isn't faith. But do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? Now here's the example. Was Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Then he says, do you see that faith was working together, not and his works, with his works, both and not either or? So note this point as he continues on. Uh, by works, faith was made perfect. Now, perfect is a term that we usually mean in English to say without any flaw. Right. But yeah. the word perfect in the original language literally just means whole or complete, right? Yeah. Mature, fully mature. Yeah. So in that mindset, note his illustration. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. You see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. 
Likewise, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them another way? For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. So two Old Testament illustrations, one in a reference to Genesis 22 and 15, right, which is important, right, and another to Joshua chapters 2 and 3. So if we keep these both in mind, what is the point that James is making? If your excuse is, I don't need works, I have faith, you're missing the point that James is making, which is what? You need sincere faith. Right. which is going to impact action. But the argument isn't that we should live in light of what we believe. If I believed that this pl- building was going to burn to the ground, I wouldn't be in it. That would be hazardous to my health. Right. But if, on the other hand, I believed this building was on fire and stayed in it, there would have to be more details. Am I just accepting the fact that all exits are blocked? Am I the one who set the fire and I'm trying to commit a very bizarre and expensive form of suicide? Or am I not actually believing the building's on fire by my actions? So when cult groups and when legalist groups are trying to present this as, you need works because you don't have faith unless you have works, well, understand it's the same mistake in reverse for the person who says, I have faith, I don't need works, I have works. I have faith. (laughs) It's the same mistake. So what is it that really gets to the heart of this issue? Well, first of all, we need to understand biblically what saves you, and it is not a work. It is faith. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 9 is usually committed to memory by most Christians for a reason, for it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. That not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. There's a lot of clarifications, there's a lot of negatives, and by the way, Paul was speaking by inspiration of the same spirit that was speaking through James. So unless you want to argue that there's a contradiction here, not the first conclusion we come to, we say, what's the harmonization? What point is James making, and what point is Paul making? Paul's making a point of salvation, James is making a point of... Sanctification. Well, consistency, sincerity a real faith that's going to impact your life. Now, when works come in, one work in particular was described, and that is evangelism, the natural desire to share something good with someone else who doesn't have it. Jesus told us to go and make disciples of every nation. Now, the word evangelism isn't necessarily used there. Discipleship is more of something in the church. But Preaching the gospel certainly constitutes that. I wouldn't dismiss that. But you need to be careful on how these groups are emotionally manipulating you and, let's be honest, teaching a false gospel. Because if our salvation is contingent on anything apart from the finished work of Jesus Christ, then the book of Galatians states it plainly. Christ died needlessly. That if we could achieve righteousness by the works of the law, this law that's been set out for you, you must evangelize, you must save so-and-so number of people a week, you must read our programs, you must buy our magazines. Oh, don't worry about that. 10% giving, that always gets in. Oh, yeah, that's it. So when we're talking (laughs) about... Gross, not that. Yes. (laughs) Very specific. But note the issue that's being presented here. Just like the faith and works dilemma isn't a dilemma, it's a duology. (laughs) We need to ask the question then, what kind of works make up the Christian life? 
what are some of the works that we were created beforehand in Christ Jesus to do as the next verse of Ephesians 2 says. God created us for good works, right? right? Now, what are some of those works? Well, the gifts of the Holy Spirit, when you are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, when you are saved, when you believe through faith in the grace of God, how he demonstrated it, how he proved it, the person of Jesus Christ, then what happens? Well, the Spirit gives to each one individually as he wills. There are gifts of administrations, gifts of prophecy, gifts of leadership, gifts of Faith. Evangelism, yeah. yeah, faith, gifts of tongues, gifts of interpretation of tongues, gifts of miracles and healings and so forth. But here's where the legalist, here's where the cultist has to hope that you either aren't aware of or that will eventually one day be removed from their false Bible. And that's what? 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and going into the end of the chapter, do all prophesy. Do all speak with tongues. Do all interpret. Do all work miracles and healings. Each one is given a gift as he's called and equipped. So if the Holy Spirit has given members in the church certain callings, certain opportunities, does that mean that everyone has to fulfill that calling or they're not saved? Yeah. See the issue? Yeah. Yeah. But if, on the other hand, we'd say, well, shouldn't every Christian at one time or another share their faith? I mean, that's to be expected. Absolutely. When you're given the opportunity, the Spirit can equip you. But it's no more a condition of my faith and like that long terms and conditions box that you check but never read yeah. than anything else in the Christian life, any other spiritual gift in the Christian life. If you run into someone who's trying to emotionally manipulate you and dangle your salvation in front of you and saying, unless you do this, you're not a Christian, well, what does it mean to be a Christian? That's to believe the question. that Jesus yeah. is Lord and that God has raised him from the dead. And it says emphatically, Romans chapter 10, 9 through 10, Quoting the Old Testament, by the way, Joel chapter 2, you will be saved. Now, what happens then? The Holy Spirit will give you equipment and callings as he sees fit. That can include evangelism from time to time or maybe regularly. But the passage that they're, they're hoping not to cite in 1 Corinthians 12 says, if I'm an eye, using the illustration of a body, and I look at someone who isn't an eye and say, you're not of the body. Because you're an ear. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> You're serving a different purpose. Yeah. And guess what? That's allowed. <laughs> yeah. Thanks, yeah. Sean. Yeah. I and you know, I think I think it's interesting. One of the phenomena I've I've seen, maybe you've seen it as well, uh, Adrian, is this phenomena of gift projection. And, and what I mean by that is someone's gifted in a certain way and just assumes that every healthy Christian should be gifted in exactly that same way. And uh, you know, we as pastors, teachers uh, tend to think that uh, everybody should spend their every waking hour, you know, parsing verbs and, <laughs> and reading huge theological tomes and things like this. And, you know, again, is that valuable in the body of Christ? Yeah, but not everybody's called to do that. Uh, you know, the, 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 the problem gets to be, and, uh, you know, I, when I was growing up in the groovy 70s, there used to be uh, these uh, rallies that... Uh, uh, and you'd hear these impassioned pleas by these Christian musicians who probably had more zeal than actual knowledge of the word, who'd say, if Jesus isn't calling you to stay here, he's calling you to go. And then they'd pray, 
play some song about Jesus rose from the dead, and you, you can't even get out of bed, you sluggard. And it was like, oh, I just, Jesus is ashamed of me, and I'm so sorry, and I'm going to become a missionary whether I feel called to do that or not. At least they thought they were going to till they woke up the next day and got over the emotional uh, mm. bummer they were under. So, you know, the, the, the problem with, the, you know, as you say, Sean, people that go to the whip uh, and say you're, you're not saved unless you do what I do uh, or, or what know, I think you or should or do. Or what I think you should do. And it's funny how many times the people that really lay it on heavy as far as, oh, we got to evangelize. And we tell you, well, when was the last time you led someone to Christ? Well, I'm uh, not called to be an evangelist. Well, I'm called to be a teacher. I, I'm, I'm supposed to exhort you to do that. You know, and, hmm. and, and, and I mean, it's like, don't do as I say, do as I do. But, uh, you know, it's, it's so funny how people will be motivated for a short amount of time to do these things or to do the absolute minimum. I mean, one of the things I share often is, you know, when you really lay it on heavy that everybody should be out sharing their faith and people feel really guilty because oh, only 15% of self-identifying evangelicals ever share their faith. And you're like, oh, I don't want to be one of those people. And so you go to work the next day and you're by the water cooler and you, you, you go to the guy and say, hey, you want to hear about Jesus? What do you go, what? And you go, oh, I didn't think so. Well, uh, I'm off the hook. I, I tried. They were just closed. Hmm. So. You know, you just end up doing the minimum. Yeah. And I'm sure the Lord's like, really? <laughs> that, that's how you look at a relationship in, with me? I remember someone in Genesis yeah. doing just the minimum. Yeah, yeah, the minimum, yeah. <laughs> so anyway, good answer. Yeah, good stuff. Yeah, and uh, not all of us are pastors, teachers, and evangelists, you know. We have to, I like what Romans 12 says about how each according to the measure of faith mm -hmm. that yeah. they have. And uh, some, some have faith to go to Lebanon, and some don't. Yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> Some of the okay. funds to go to Lebanon, too. Yeah. <laughs> or at least a ministry to sponsor. <clears throat> uh, next question. Uh, we have a lot of questions today, so maybe we can do a little bit of a rapid-fire session yeah, here. Yeah, great. But, um, uh, Allie wants to know, does the Bible say anything about don't, quote-unquote, stick your head in the sand and ignore, quote-unquote, the news? The news of today is so depressing right now. Ignorance is bliss, perhaps? Uh, should we just ignore it and focus on the, the little things or is it good to have sort of a national slash global awareness of events well to me i think it's great yeah because when you see these things begin to happen jesus said look up for your salvation draws nigh mm -hmm. he didn't say when you see these things begin to happen wars rumors of wars earthquakes famines pestilences in many places and so on, increasing in frequency and intensity. As the big day draws near, uh, the, the skids being greased uh, financially and power structure-wise for the rise of a last day's world-dominating dictator and so on. Uh, you know, we look at these things, and, you know, on one side of the coin, that can be a little depressing. But Jesus said, didn't say, look down when you see those things. No, he said, look up, for your salvation draws near. There's an encouragement that we have because we bring a biblical perspective to these things. You know, it's interesting in the book of Esther, uh, chapter 1 and verse 13, uh, it talks about the king said to the wise men who understood the times, for this was the king's manner towards all who knew law and justice. Uh, there's a value to understanding the times. Uh, there is a value to being up to date. And uh, if that motivates us, to look for the return of Jesus coming at any particular moment, then that's a good thing. Uh, you know, the other counterbalancing uh, principle in all this is in Philippians chapter 4 and verse 8. 
Uh, finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are noble, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there's any virtue or anything worthy of praise, let your mind think on these things. Well, if you know, you're the kind of person who's sensitive about these things and, and these things drag you down and get your mind off of those things, the Bible says uh, you know, we should be focusing on. By the way, you know, some people go, wow, you know, eight things we're supposed to let our minds stay. That's a lot to think about yeah. in and of itself. I don't, well, here, here's the shorthand. Think about Jesus because he's all those things. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I think anything that gets our eyes off of Jesus is not a good thing, and that's usually where we get depressed and distressed. What uh, Corey Ten Boom said, uh, look around and be distressed, look within and be uh, depressed, uh, but look up and you'll be blessed. Mm. I think if we have that as, as our watchword in looking at the news, then that's great. Just a word on social media. Sean, you do a lot of that. How do you keep from having your, your joy, your peace in the Lord corroded by interacting with people that maybe, for lack of a better term, are trolls? Know your limits and what sets the line between edification and just outright discouragement. There's nothing wrong with, quote unquote, taking a break and saying, this is not building me up, <laughs> not only my love for my fellow man, mm. but it's not making me look up for the Lord. It's making me do anything but. So if you're in a position where you are being discouraged by the things in the world, imagine, then just take that as a sign and saying, you know, I'm going to focus instead of the world at large and just focus on the three or four little cherubs in front of me, hint, hint. But if on <laughs> the other hand, you're saying, you know, it, it's been a while. I, I think I've gotten over that malaise. Mm. What's going on and how can I be a positive influence on it? Or <clears throat> someone comes up to you and asks, what did you think about this? Say, well, I haven't uh, looked into that. Give me a minute be an opportunity to get back into it. But there is absolutely nothing wrong with setting a limit and knowing yourself, because if you basically just bite the bullet and end up poisoning yourself, that just produces bitterness, and we don't want that. Yeah. Yeah, Jesus hung out with uh, tax gatherers and sinners. He hung out in the sort of with the untouchables, and uh, obviously that would be depressing for someone who knows the truth. Yeah. And how often did he get out by himself and spend time in prayer and just on his own all the time constantly yeah and, and but i think there's another angle on this you know as far as the lord goes you know in the book of hebrews it says that uh the lord anointed with the oil of joy more than his companions hmm. in other words jesus was one of the most joyful people you'll ever be around why well you know the best definition of joy and this really revolutionized hmm. my life uh when this was shared with me is chuck smith defined joy in a message as the emotional response we have to seeing God at work in our lives. Hmm. Hmm. And I think that separates it from happiness or you know, you know, nice breaks or anything else like that. Hmm. But those moments where it's like, whoa, you know, this was like a divine appointment. Hmm. Uh, boy, we had one uh, last weekend, uh, a dear friend of ours who was one of your Grammy's uh, best friends, uh, uh, you know, she let us know that uh, you know, her husband was struggling a little bit with health. so. We called, uh, got her answering machine, but we really felt led just to pray and leave a prayer on, on, her, uh, on her cell phone. And she called us back and she said, oh my gosh, I was going around the, the block with uh, my husband. Uh, he said he wasn't feeling really well. He's 89 years old. Sat down on a bench, he put his head on my shoulder and he had a massive heart attack and died. Mm. 
And on the way to the hospital, I looked at my phone and I saw that your prayer was there. And it was exactly what I needed to hear at that moment. And Pam and I just looked at each other like, wow, wow, this is like a God thing. <clears throat> I mean, the last time we called this woman and talked to her like six months ago or something like mm -hmm. that. But the Lord was just working all these things together to encourage her and to encourage us. And man, we're just looking at each other and kind of with that, you know, kind of twilight zone, like, wow, there's something bigger here going on than, than meets the eye. Mm. You know, and I think when Jesus ministered to people, even in distressing or depressing situations, knowing that it was the leading of his father allowed him to be able to have joy even in those difficult mm. times. And we can have that same thing. You guys left a message like that for me one time. It was a, a belated birthday message, and it was a very good timing. Yeah. You, you sang happy birthday oh. in the voice message. Oh, Ooh. Well, I think we, we cause dogs to howl when we sing happy birthday. So you're, you're think, very generous. I think Mominator did yeah. the loudest yeah, part of the yeah, singing that, part. I usually make that the case. So. Well, thank you uh, for the question, Allie. And um, I hope that was encouraging to you that it's okay to, uh, to turn off the world from a time to time. Yeah, <clears throat> absolutely. Uh, Yari wants to know, she uh, asked a question in two parts, and I'll just read the way Yari uh, questioned it. Um, it's all one question. Yeah. Is, okay, so about abortion from an atheist, <clears throat> but aren't you worried if the baby becomes a serial killer or severely physically or mentally deformed and God chooses not to heal them and that baby has to live that way forever, wouldn't abortion be okay then? Question mark. Uh, better to have not been born than to live a life of suffering. Thanks. I guess this was a question from an atheist, yeah. uh, from a pro-choice position. Okay, well, uh, let's jump three assumptions too far and take a step back. Uh, when you're dealing in hypotheticals, you don't determine that as the rule. You go with what's actually in reality. If the possibility of someone you don't know could in the future be a serial killer or uh, whatever illustration they gave, uh, that's a moral decision of someone's future and giving incentive for them to be murdered in the present. So if a nine-year-old, if a 19-year-old, if a 29-year-old could one day become a serial killer, is the law or are the parents justified in killing them because it would spare their future victims? Obviously, you're not going to buy that. That's horrible, horrible logic. Likewise, uh, what if they become severely physically or mentally deformed. Well, first of all, there are families who have deformed babies, and there are also babies that are born deformed, and for whatever reason, they don't just give up on life, they love their children they shouldn't have in their repertoire. Well, there could be some inconvenience here, so I'm going to kill this thing. Well, let's ask the mother of this child, and assuming that she doesn't have her uh, I guess loyalties determined or divided between her children and crack cocaine, we can say, I think she's going to want to keep the baby. But let's also ask another question. If we're in this scenario of what ifs, then I can also play the scenario of what ifs. What if, despite the deformities, the child would be happy? Would you rob them of a happy life just because you deem them as inferior? What if I could look at that person's life, uh, someone who's disabled, like for instance, an individual who has a ministry as a quadriplegic after a diving accident. You give the audience the name. Um, I'm, I'm sorry, run that by me again. The quadriplegic woman who had the diving accident. Oh, Johnny Erickson. Johnny yeah. Erickson Tata. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, do you know the name of her ministry? Uh, Johnny and Friends. Johnny and Friends. J-O-N-I. So for yeah. whatever reason, and noting that after 
pretty much the most life-changing disability after birth or during birth or any other time in between. What was interesting about that woman is that she didn't despair of life, that she had purpose, which once again shows that if we're dealing with the what-if scenarios of absolute despair, what if we can deal in the scenarios of what-if absolute hope? Why is it that we determine policy and morality off of your worst-case scenario and not my best? This is the problem with what-ifs. Also note, if God chooses not to heal them and that baby has to live that way forever, wouldn't abortion be okay then to you or the baby? And that's the question. You're making a decision for someone else and taking your life, and you should be thankful we're not applying your logic because that makes you the serial killer in this case. Yeah. Well, you know, the other thing that comes up with all this, this is sort of a flip-flop uh, to one of those uh, objections to abortions that, uh, that sometimes gets presented by well-meaning pro-life people but usually is kind of at odds with the facts of it. Talk about a college professor who throws out this idea okay, you know this woman, she's had eight children, uh, her husband is blind and beats her, uh, you know, she has been diagnosed with syphilis, uh, would you, under that uh, set of uh, circumstances, advise to abort the child? And most would say yes, and then they'd say, congratulations, you just aborted Beethoven. Well, you know, that sounds real ta-da and, and all of this. Problem is, Beethoven was like the third child born to this family, so the, act, the, the, the facts don't really add up. Uh, only two of Beethoven's five younger siblings survived beyond their first few years of life. So it was kind of a different set of circumstances being born back then. But even if we took this at face value, you can flip it around. Uh, if you were to say, for instance, describe uh, the circumstances of, uh, say, a couple in Russia who are growing up uh, and, uh, you know, despite poverty and despite uh, difficulties in their lives, uh, they decided to go ahead and you gave them the encouragement to go ahead and have that baby. Uh, you could very easily turn that around and say, well, congratulations, you just brought Stalin into the world. Uh, so, you know, this idea of hypotheticals is uh, kind of a speculative what-if game uh, that neither side can really win. Or because we, we do not, we are not possessed with foreknowledge about the destiny of a particular child. The, the key issue to my mind on the abortion controversy is asking the question, not what could this child become, you know, a Nobel Prize winning laureate or Jeffrey Dahmer. Uh, the, the question to ask is, when does life begin? Uh, and, and just the value of life, what is this child now? Not what the child might become in the future, and it misses the whole point of the entire conversation. Right. Do you define life essentially or do you define life pragmatically yeah. or circumstantially? Yeah. Do I define or value life based on the outcomes of this person's add to civilization? Or do I define life essentially meaning that human beings are essentially valuable regardless of how productive they might be, uh, what they might amount to in their lives or what they might not amount to. What if this child were to get uh, uh, in a tragic car accident a month after their birth? Does that mean that their life is le uh, less valuable a month before that? Um, well, uh, well, so that becomes the, 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 real, the real issue is how you define life, not just when life begins, but how you define its value. Well, certain modern ethicists like Peter Singer uh, have made the statement that if we were able to determine genetically uh, that, uh, say, a person would come down with cancer later in life, 
uh, he would uh, come out in favor of aborting the child before it even had a chance for life because we could eliminate certain kinds of cancers. I take that rather personally because when I came down from cancer, I was diagnosed with the precise same kind of cancer my grandfather had at the precise same age. Hmm. And so I think there's pretty good evidence that there was a genetic link to this particular cancer that I had. Hmm. So by Dr. Singer's lights, I should have been aborted because uh, that would have uh, decreased the amount of cases of this particular cancer in this world. Well, I'd like to thank my parents for not having that form of ethics, <laughs> but it really does come down to this. Is life a gift from God or an accident? When does life begin? Well, you know, again, we've talked about this scientifically. As soon as you have a fertilized egg, you don't have uh, a thing, you have a being. You have a being that has a certain genetic endowment. 46 chromosomes. It is a being that is human. It is a human being. Our life began at that particular moment. And if we understand that and we react according to that ethically and spiritually, uh, you know, Psalm 139, your eyes saw my unformed substance in the days which were ordained for me when there was not yet one of them, David said. Uh, that idea of unformed substance before a single cell differentiated. Uh, and David became David. God saw that and called it David, called it life, called it personal. Mm -hmm. And that's why we take the pro-life stand that we take. Mm -hmm. So, If I was starving in the wilderness, I would get arrested and criminalized if I were to eat an endangered owl egg just because I was hungry. Yeah, but there you go. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, just don't fall back on these arbitrary what-ifs to determine solid facts. Don't fall back on this nonsensical argument that if there's a potential future that I don't know, then in order to spare hardship or spare difficulty mm. or spare inconvenience, that that's somehow a right for me to kill them. Because as we saw in Avengers Infinity War, you don't know that, Thanos. Yeah. Yeah. And, and again, the other side of it is equally important to understand. We don't value life simply because of the contribution that life might make to society or Western civilization somewhere down the line. All people are made in the image and likeness of God, and that's why every life is worth standing for. Which so, is both yeah. sides of the argument <clears throat> to the last yeah. question, which is why does God get to take life and not us? horrifyingly phrased, first of all, because we don't know the end from the beginning. God does. God would know when the right time would be to take that life pragmatically, if that's your argument. And he also is the one in whom that image is made. He has the right to take that life because he's the one who actually gave, established, mm. and determined its value. Yeah. Deuteronomy 32 and verse 39 says, Now, see that I, even I, am he. There is no God besides me. I kill and make alive. Mm. God is the only one who can say that. So no. it's like that comedian talking about parenting. I brought you into this world. I can take you out. <laughs> <laughs> Except in a more yeah, yeah. sense. <laughs> but with some serious consequences yeah. if you do. Yeah. Joking aside, yeah. uh, this is a great question from a young married couple, early 20s. Uh, the question is um, uh, on husbands and leadership, it's, uh, and I'll read the whole email because it's pretty good, and I think this is a very valuable question. So we're going to jump to our email audience here. And uh, I've been saved for about three years and married for two. We are both saved, her for longer. I've been struggling with effective, effective leading in being in the Word together. We do things individually like podcasts and sermons throughout the day, et cetera. But I see that when it comes to being in the Word together, it's almost non-existent outside of Bible studies and church. Both of our walks with God have been affected by this, and I know it's my responsibility, therefore my fault. 
I know we have to fight for the time Yikes. and have discipline and prayer about these things, which we have, but I feel like no matter what, we can't establish consistency, and I feel distant from her in this aspect. It's been an ongoing issue this past year. My question is, how do we balance discipline and seeking God in his word while still accepting grace in our failures and not getting caught up in the fact that I'm uh, failing in this aspect of our marriage? I just feel stuck, and it's been a long time, and we don't have this issue during dating in an early marriage. Thanks. Thank you, you know, I'm, I'm really, I guess the biggest uh, concern, compassionately wise, is the fact that uh, this relationship is being seen as success and failure. You know, it seems like there's a lot of condemnation that's mm. involved with all of this, you know, mm. this uh, the sense of ought, you know, that, that real Christians do this, and I'm only kind of doing this, so I guess I'm not, you know, and, and I don't say that to pile on. I, I say that because God wants to lift that. You know, why do we do anything in the Christian life? We talked about this seems to be the, the theme of the program. Why do we do anything like husbands loving their wives? Well, it's not a got to. You know, the Bible doesn't say that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him and has devotions with his wife every day should not perish but have everlasting <laughs> life. You know, it doesn't, th those things are not in there. Uh, why do we do what we do in the Christian life? Well, you know, again, Paul laid it out in 1 Corinthians 13. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. He goes on and he talks about some pretty impressive things. But if you're not doing them for the motivation of love, uh, you're spinning your wheels. Okay, so how does the motivation of love come in here? Well, my love for God, obviously, I want to do things that please him, not in order to be loved, but because I'm loved. And because I'm loved, that's going to overflow into my life. The other thing that we need to understand is, is this. When doing things that we know are going to be beneficial, like, say, having a devotional time as a married couple, uh, become a got-to. Um, it's going to be characterized by kind of grinding obedience to certain commands and expectations and, and am I doing enough? And pretty soon you're never going to be doing enough. But when it's a got to, uh, you know, when it's a get to, when it's just like, wow, you know what? We get to spend a little time in the Word together. Mm. That's awesome. Not because you got to, not because <clears throat> God will love you more if you do, or he's going to love you less if you don't. He cannot love you more. He will not love you less. Get that through your head, and that's a really important thing to grasp. But let me, let me maybe offer a little practical thing. Start with small steps. You know, when you're going to get in shape, say, to run a 26-mile race, and you've never really run around the block, you know, maybe it's a good idea to start out by saying, hey, I'm just going to get up in the morning and run 100 yards, see if I can do it, see how I feel the next day. And you start simple, and you, you, you build. You, you know, but if you say, oh, my gosh, I'm going to run a marathon. I better go run 20 miles tomorrow. You might succeed in running 20 miles and pass out, but I guarantee you'll never run again. So... Mm. The wow. thing that I'd suggest as far as starting simple and basic is something you know, my wife Pam and I do. People say, well, what do you do, Pastor, as far as your devotion? I must, <laughs> you must get out Kittle's, you know, uh, New Testament uh, words dictionary. Do you just and, hand her a you know, CD of your yeah, sermons? You know, and, you, know, what, you know what we do? A uh, good friend of ours, Chuck Smith Jr., wrote a book called One Minute Meditations. It has 365 of these one-minute meditations in this book. You go through the whole Bible. You know, it's about yay big and about that thick. 
and it, each one of them has a scripture. You go from Genesis to Revelation, and uh, you know we'll read this scripture. And Chuck Jr. just has this wonderful gift of being able to express things graciously, but in a very personally applicable way. And so, my wife and I will say, "Okay, time. Let's let's do devotions." You know, we sit down and we go through that, and it's usually just something that's really you know, delightful, something we hadn't really thought of before, something very encouraging, sometimes it's challenging. But then we just pray together. And maybe our devotions last five minutes, but it's not quantity of time. It's the quality of time. Mm. It's, it's deciding, you know, before uh, we get going on our day, we just want to honor the Lord and hear from Him and just be a little time in the Word. So uh, go online, look for, uh, again, One Minute Meditations by Chuck Smith Jr. I think you can get it on, uh, on uh, any of the uh, you know, Amazon or whatever. Just look it up and uh, just commit yourself to that, and that'll be good. Hmm. We got time for one more question? Yeah, Tim's yeah, question do. can be dealt with. Yeah. Uh, which one? If uh, God knows everything, why did he ask Adam, where oh, yeah. are you? <laughs> the same reason he asked me, where are you, Sean, when uh, I was nine years old and Sarah was six and she wanted to know who hit her. <laughs> the idea wasn't to fulfill knowledge. It wasn't if God didn't know where they were. The whole point of asking the question was to draw them into the conversation, for them to acknowledge the fact they had done something. You have to assume a lot into God's nature for a question to always be from a lack of knowledge. That's a false assumption, just like with the issue with work and faith. Make sure that when you read the passage, it says, okay, if this is what I know about God, then that option's out. What else could this be? Well, God loved Adam and Eve. He still does, so maybe he's talking to them like a parent, not like an investigator. Yeah, perfect. Well, thank you very much, both of you. Uh, great time, great questions. Awesome. Thank you for joining yeah. us, and we hope you were encouraged. If you didn't get a chance to uh, have us get to your question, chime in again, same place, same time tomorrow. God bless you. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.